welcome to the Red Dove Podcast. I'm back with Blue. Hi, Blue. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? How was your week? It was great. It was great. It's stressful, very stressful, but so goes the pandemic, right? And it continues. Right. Right. And tonight we're excited to have a conversation with Rainy. Rainy is a 32-year-old black single mother of two pretty amazing kids. She teaches middle school English on a farm in a public Montessori charter school in Southern California. When she is not drilling the importance of the Oxford comma into her students' heads, she also works as the social justice coordinator and sits on the diversity committee at her youngest school. You can find her leading her kids to black excellence by example and a lot of reading. Hi, Rainy. Thank you so much for being on the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is super exciting. How are you, Liz? It's so good to good. see you. You too. How are you? <sighs> I, I feel like I'll be better after November 3rd, one way or the other. Hopefully we know. We might not. Yeah. Just, they say, like, prepare yourself for not necessarily knowing and like to not like I think Trump's gonna make it like panic and fear but the truth is whether whoever were the um candidates because I think I don't know you tell me I don't know I think because of COVID is gonna be slower to count all the votes well I'm not sure if you've been hearing what's been happening here in California but the GOP in California have been setting up illegal ballot boxes. So people have been dumping them in there. Oh, Lord. So now we're having a problem with now they're collecting illegal and we don't know what they're doing with them. So are they only in certain neighborhoods? I haven't done that much research yet, but I just it's horrifying. Yeah. you know, and then it takes advantage of people and, you know, you really can only go to like the county registrar's to make sure it's safe. And I don't even trust it in the mailbox at this point. Or um, like, in person. A lot of people don't trust the mailbox. No. And, and you know, we're having major Trump rallies. Like, you know, California is a blue state, but we have some really scary pockets of red. Like somebody was shot here in California. Uh, uh, Black Lives Matter, um, a nurse, an essential worker, and this Trumper shot him in the gut, like, 10 miles away from where I live. Like, so we have, like, these really scary pockets of red, like, going down to my parents, they're, like, 40 miles away, and I was driving down there the other day, and there's this huge line of Trump supporters, like, with their flags waving, which I'm like, what kind of a cold is this as much as i loved obama i've never posted a huge flag of him in my car right Right. like i like like the cool guy is cool i loved him but i mean come on now but i was driving by and it was no less than i kid you not a hundred cars just honking and waving and i'm here with like my big ass black lives matter shirt and i'm like like i'm not afraid i'm not ashamed but also children on my own and these guys are all lifted trucks you know, all honking, and it's about a hundred of them, and I'm like, this is not the time to have this conversation. Wow. Like, you want to be starting something, got to be starting something. 
Exactly. That is it's too much. That's, that's ridiculous. These people, but just like you said, which Liz is always like, like, you know, well, you reach a level of empathy that I don't go to. Thanks for um, picking that up. I was just trying to make sure cheers. We were all at the same party. Yeah. I was like, all right, yeah. But um, she's like, you, you, you go to a place of em- empathy that I don't have. And I'm like, but these people have to be sick. Like you said, like when you put that level of just effort into something, you're, you're not stable because you should have things like that should be important to you, but not, it shouldn't be like, you shouldn't be killing people right. over things because then you see those interviews and they ask them for, you know, the serious go hard Trump supporters for quality information or facts as to why they believe or they support. And they're like, uh, uh, so you're crazy. You're clinically insane. But, and I think the scariest thing about it is, is also when presented, we are in this age of anti-intellectualism that is horrifying, you know, as an educator, I am terrified when I'm teaching my students about how to cite their sources and how to back things up and how to look through things. And then you give sources, you're like, well, okay, but the facts are this, this, and this. And somebody's like, well, those are your facts. I'm like, that's right. How do you argue with that? How do you argue? I mean, it's it feels like arguing with like like I, I made the allusion to arguing with like a kamikaze back in World War II. Like, how do you fight against somebody who like just does not care that much and will just like all of it? Just which is true. It's scary. Like I like trying to explain these things to these people, like, well, you know. I, I'm educated, you know, I have a, I hold a master's degree, like I've done my research on a lot of this stuff. And you're like, oh, you and your liberal indoctrination and well, like being educated is now a bad thing. Like it, it just, is, it, it, shame it, on you. Yeah, right, like, <laughs> like I finally got a master's degree and I find like I did it and I'm like, oh, well, shit. Yes, <laughs> it's not good enough, no. nor did they want to hear about what you've learned it's crazy. No. And then, you know, what I love is, well, you're the racist for pointing it out. And I'm like, well, actually the definition means this, that, and the other. And I'm a social justice coordinator and I go to conferences all across the country. That's not what my dictionary says. I'm like, well, right. your dictionary is like the KKK manual. So I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> like, Right. And you also are pulling that from your brain or some other just like outside non-tangible source. Yeah. Because... I say the same thing all the time. The definition is A, B, C, and D. And that's the other thing too. Like when it comes down to words, people don't, like you said, they're just not interested in accurate or factual information. They're interested in what they choose to follow or support. No matter how, even if it doesn't benefit them. You know, you there's a lot of people and um, you're like, do you understand that everything you're supporting is against you as an individual? Like one of my girlfriends, she gets so irritated because this woman that I forget how they even know each other, but she follows her on Facebook just for like personal entertainment, which is <laughs> terrible. <laughs> and she's like this, you know, um, and I'm giving you these details to express or help to, um, show some of the categories she may fall into, right? So she, I believe, has like a pre-existing condition, is overweight, 
white woman um, receives assistance of all sorts, um, does not work. Um, you know, like the list goes on and on. But she is so quick to say that black people always want a handout. And my friend is like, you're take like you're receiving it. So why is there not how how do you which to me again just supports the fact you're clinically insane. Right. Well the you don't have the ability to reason. Well, I mean, like what I've taught my students and what we talk about a lot when we talk about the rise of fascism in World War II, you know, because you know, I teach English at the seventh and eighth grade level, but I'm like, we're going to talk about this. So <laughs> when we talk about like To Kill a Mockingbird, I pair that with Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, so my students can see the points of views of two young girls, a white girl and a black girl, both growing up in the 1940s in the Deep South, and they're very different experiences with race. But when, one of the things I first tell them is to be able to treat people like this, you have to dehumanize them in your mind first. So you cannot think of somebody as your equal and then treat them like this. So you have to do these mental gymnastics to justify, and that's what we're seeing, these mental gymnastics to justify what's happening to black people across the nation because they don't look at us like we are the same. They don't value our lives. That's why they can yell, all lives matter in our faces. It's not that they don't understand. It's not that they are just really worried about, you know, everybody being equal. It's that they have been okay with dehumanizing us and they cannot look at us as the same. So more recently, I've read an article um, and I think what you're saying is very interesting because this article, as you've probably been um, seeing more, especially within social justice, has to deal with um, culturally and linguistically responsive teaching and learning. And as you were speaking about, you know, reading literature in middle school and high school, to me, I remember that being a point or a period for me where, because my grandfather was an English teacher and I loved reading until then. And then I started to kind of feel like it was torture. And as you were talking and you're explaining that book, I'm like, wow, I don't remember feeling those takeaways, but I know that it was there. I know that it was apparent. I know that I had the ability to take it away. I think that the interesting concept is that what you're giving your students is rich because that is what you have the ability to do within literature. And just like you're saying, that's what's being done now. So even like um, there was an article not too long ago that I've read that discussed how people even, you know, they would say, well, now, you know, you need to have a photograph to support your evidence, et cetera. Blah, 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 blah. Not only an article or a journal, but, you know, a photograph, et cetera. Now it's even stepped up to a video because people will manipulate the photo to tell the story that they want to tell. So going along with what you're saying, it's like there's so much to unpack. And that is the age and even younger of those discussions because it's truly a mindset, you know? Absolutely. And that's why I have focused so much of my efforts into teaching the way I do to young, white, affluent boys. That mm. is my demographic. That is my target. Um, you know, we need social justice in all aspects. We need, um, you know, representation in, you know, Black schools. And we need representation, you know, and to 
solidify and show black excellence and show young black kids that they are worthy. But the other side of that coin is, is we also have to have these discussions with white children. And that was, right. that was where I was finding there was a lack of. And I started my work with social justice because having conversations and dealing with 13, 14, 15 year old white boys, that age group where in adolescence, they are looking to belong, right? right. Who will scoop them up the fastest if we leave them unmoored in a environment where now they're seeing, you know, the white man has his comeuppance, rightly so, but we are not giving these young white boys any guidance. It's just right. you know, what they were telling me was, I can't have a conversation about this stuff. Everyone just tells me, shut up. It's not your turn. You're a white man. And these baby boys wow. don't, these baby boys don't understand that. And so there's no one to guide them. So what happens when you as a teenager, it doesn't matter what color you are, but if you're told it's not your turn, be quiet, make room for someone else. And no, room is not made for you to have these discussions. And then when you finally are listened to, who do we, who, who are we allowing our young boys to listen to? If we're not making space for them, who's going to pick them up? So how did you end up teaching in that type of, with that population? Was that a, an interest of yours? Were you going in with a certain motive? Um, it was funny. I used to teach preschool. Um, and then I decided to go and get my um, teaching credential, you know, um, near the end of my marriage, which, you know, I'll talk a little bit more about that disaster. <laughs> but um I had to do, I had to look at, you know, you have to observe when you're doing your teaching credential. And I thought I wanted to do elementary school, you know, and I was like, yeah, you know, third grade, because I was preschool, this will be good. And then I went into a third grade class and was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, Why? What happened? I, you know, they just, they needed too no, I'm joking. <laughs> I know, right? It was, just, it was, it was, they needed too much hand it's hard, like, I don't mind teaching kids how to read or dealing with kids who already know how to read, but that in between, I'm like, I, ugh. <laughs> you know, like, why can't you read better? Which is not fair. <laughs> right, killing confidence left and right on a daily basis. And and I'm too sarcastic. In preschool, it goes right over their heads. In <laughs> third grade, they sort of start understanding, but not quite. Like that, but I also knew that I wanted to have these real conversations. You know, in preschool, you can have them in a different kind of way about like introducing these ideas. But that age group that I was looking at, I was like, this isn't this isn't where my heart feels happy. And then I walked into a social studies class that was learning about the civil rights movement, and I was like, and listening to the questions that they had and asking, and them making points with what was happening now, and I was like, this is it. This is what I want. I can talk to these kids. I wow. can, my, my personality didn't progress much past middle school. So like, <laughs> not true. <laughs> you know, so like, and, and I can, I can relate to them and I think that they can relate to me. And, and I just knew instantly. And what got me in this area was, um, I had happened to be working in the preschool and we have a sister school that is a public school. And I was like, I need to do student teaching. I need to be an intern because in California, when you student teach, you student teach for 18 weeks unpaid. And I was wow. like, no, no, no. Or, no, excuse me, unpaid for 13 weeks. I was like, you know who can't be unpaid for 13 weeks living in Southern California? <laughs> me. 
So I was like, I need to be an intern, which an intern, you basically jump right in. You don't follow a teacher around. You're like, all right, here you go. Bye. And I was like, I can do this. I can do this. And I went to the principal. I went to my principal of the preschool and I was like, can you introduce me? Can you pull like a Barney Stinson from uh, How I Met Your Mother? I'm like, have you met my friend Rainy? Right. <laughs> And he was like, sure, and he did. And the principal of this Grove School, of where I am, um, they were like, I was, he was like, yeah, what do you want to do? And I was like, are you looking for an English teacher? Because I have a bachelor's degree in English and I love literature. And he was like, actually, that is exactly what we're looking for. And I was like, I can teach up to seventh and eighth grade with my credential. And he's like, we need a seventh and eighth grade English teacher. That's awesome. I didn't even know. So he had me apply and the way they did the application was, you actually apply with the students. So I had to teach a 30 minute lesson to the students and they have a say, cause they're like, hey, you're gonna be teaching us. Right. So I taught them a lesson on uh, Aristotle's um, allegory of the cave. And I was like, if you can make reference to this story in any, any other uh, literature you read, you're gonna get an A. I'm giving you a gift right now with this present, right? If I, you can understand this and then use it anywhere else, you're gonna get an A. They're like, hey, cool, thanks. <laughs> you know? So that's how I got in. And when I came in, I told my boss, I was like, so there are no other black teachers at this school. And I think that one of the problems with this pedagogy of Montessori is they it's it's colorblind it's like we love everybody right no that's great and fine but then it's not because then you're not looking at the very real problems that your children of color are facing and i was like you have all these white kids here and they just think everybody's all hunky-dory but they're not really looking at the deeper meaning of things and i was like right. I, I can help you with that and he was like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know so they hired me and i was like i i'm socially justice-minded that's awesome. That's where I want to go. And so my first year I had to create my thesis. And my thesis was basically, um, it was an intervention plan I had to make was, I felt that if I gave young, white, straight, uh, cisgender boys a place, a safe place, well, not a safe place, but a place where they could be brave to have conversations about marginalized people, then they would do better in the long run because my hypothesis was they didn't know how to have those conversations. And so I created brave spaces, which I told them, you know, at first they were like, well, I'm not safe, safe spaces. And I was like, as a teacher, I can never guarantee you safety. I can't, you know, that that's irresponsible of me. I can't promise that my trans student walking out of my classroom will be safe after saying what they say here. I can't guarantee my black student will be safe. I can't guarantee that. I can't promise you that. It's irresponsible. But I can promise you a place where you can be brave and you can practice being brave. And I will protect you in this space. And I will teach you how to have these dialogues and these conversations. And so that's what we did. So every once a month, I teamed up with a social studies teacher and I would have them, we would talk about a certain marginalized type of person and we would read something um, from a, a person their age group, you know? so. Um, a young black girl, their age group talking about racial discrimination. And actually I had them read something that I had written and they didn't know it was me until way after uh, something about how I had faced discrimination. And, you know, um, talking, reading a story about LGBTQ communities 
and, and children who feel like they are in the closet and they can't say anything. So, and then opening them these up, these discussions. So we do Socratic seminars. So everybody sits in a circle, you know, like Socrates um, started back in ancient Greece where nobody is ahead. I'm not the head of the classroom there. Everybody has an equal say, everybody's voice is valid. And I tell them that, and I say, you know, you just have to come ready to listen. And then we discuss the articles and we say, well, why do you think that this person feels like this? What did you learn from here? And sometimes the kids don't agree. There are some who are very, very conservative. They're like, well, I don't, I don't think so. I'm like, okay, that's fine. But are you listening? Listen to other people. And it gives people also a space to speak up about their own experiences. And I've seen, I've seen young white boys blossom under that because I figured if I, as a doubly marginalized person, as a woman and a woman of color, if I can invite them to this talking table and give them a seat at this table, then they'll be they'll be they'll be more likely to sit down at this table and have these discussions and talk now, about. Let me ask you another question. Now, what's your demographics like? How many do you have? Any children of color in your school? Yes, uh, about four or five. We're very small. Children of color, not out of how many? Two hundred and thirty. Okay. Wow. So I'm um, smaller. I'm working on a small scale for sure. Right. That I mean, but it's still an important population because, like you said, it is. You know, it's it's the good old boys network essentially. So and there's a generation kids, of that. And these kids, their parents drive Teslas and Range Rovers, and you know they have money. So, oh, I believe it. I went to private school too, and. Definitely went to school with some of the people that produce our meat. Let's put it like that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, movers and shakers. Right. And it just, it continues, you know, it right. continues. So you're right to, to really attack that population with this thought and this conversation. How, like, in those um, sessions, what, is it an elective? Is it a class that all students move through? Is it after school? Is it during school hours? What are the details? So it started off as it was mandatory. I made it in my English class. It was a part of the speaking grade. Nice. And you know, I was like, yeah, no, you're going to do this. And the social studies teacher was amazing because she'd been there for like 15 years. So I kind of had her, her longevity and her also love for social justice behind me, you know, but then she was also a wonderful white ally who was like, I will make the room for you. I will use my privilege to give you space to do this, you know, so I will use my seniority to be here with you. And then right. you take it, which was- And that's important in schools. That is important. Right, you know, cause I was a brand new first year, right. you know, black teacher, you know, I'm already like, you know, I have bright hair. I've always had this bright, colorful hair. And like, you know, like everyone knows exactly what I'm about as soon as you see me. So, you right. know, I already knew that I had that kind of working against me, but I was also like, I have to be authentic and Ooh. also show these parents that, you know, you can have this, you know, and I'm still going to teach your kids about adjectives and pronouns and how to close read and annotate, which a lot of them didn't think I could do. <laughs> right. They're like, oh, you know how to do that? Yeah, you're not just going to talk about this black stuff. Yeah, no. And I'm like, yeah, well, let's also talk about, you know, possessive pronouns and how we do that. Let's, right. Let's, <laughs> right. 
let's do that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'll talk circles around you too. Let's right, right. So I had that backing me up too. So I'm like, yeah, no, I've got you. I, I can teach seventh and eighth grade English. Um, it's yeah, that's not a problem. Right. Um, but I think the good thing is, is the type of school we're at, I think a lot of the parents were also okay with it. And they were looking for those things for their students. I think it's really amazing that you're, you're re-educating the next generation. Yes. This is awesome. And it's all data backed. Schools love that. They need those words, research-based. I mean, because the thing is, like you said, when it comes down to facts, right? Like we can throw things at the wall all we want, but I'm discussing things that really occur, have occurred, and exist, and we need to like identify how we're going to deal with this as we move throughout our lives. And that is a part of educating the whole child. Right, and that's what I definitely believe in is this holistic approach. Like I'm not just teaching them English, I'm teaching them how to be global citizens of right. society. And that's what this class started. And it started in my English class and then they gave me a whole elective class so students can teach. And it was great because I had some students who decided to take it for three, three or two, uh, two trimesters in a row or three trimesters in a row, wow. you know, and they just wanted to know more. And then I was like, okay. And what the next step is, is I'm like, okay, now you've seen me do it. You go find something go find something and get the resources. And then you teach, you talk about it. You bring this stuff up. What's important to you? Talk about marginalization. Let's talk about, so one of my students was like, I suffer from depression and severe anxiety. Can we talk about that? And I was like, absolutely. Go find stuff. Go find me back, you know, research back data. Go find me stories. Let's go figure it out. And she and I worked together and we put a whole thing together and she remained anonymous and she wrote something about how it feels when, you know, people say, hey, just, just, you're fine, you know, cheer up and, and how much it hurts. And, you know, and I had to brace her. I'm like, you know, just so you know, they don't know it's you. So they might not always be super kind, you know, cause again, we're, I'm not going to censor, I'm going to protect, but you know, it, this is a place where we talk about it. And it was amazing to see so many kids were like, I feel like that be brave about these things that they're actually facing and i so, think oh i'm sorry no 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 go ahead the best one i saw the best i think my my most like feel good session was the one we did on lgbtq because it was so hard for my boys they did not want to have that conversation like when we finished reading it and we had watched a little disney short on this little boy, it's on like Disney Plus and it's like three or four minutes of this little boy who's at school and his heart is literally outing him. Like it's pumping and beating out of its chest and it's trying to reach this other little boy. And he keeps trying to push it back in because he doesn't want other people to know, you know? And his heart runs away and, you know, he's like trying to get it back and it ends up breaking his heart and he's so sad and devastated. And, you know, and then he's trying to put his heart back together and this other little boy helps him like mend it back together. And it's this beautiful, cute thing. And, you know, just about like first love, you know, but the boys in the class, we finish it and they're like, I don't, I don't know how to talk about this. <laughs> they did not want to talk. The girls were like, this is adorable. We loved it. Right. <laughs> because girls are, uh, girls are given that pass to be more 
accepting and more like, hey, this is cool. But boys, you show even the slightest little bit like, hey, that's cool. And then your masculinity is questioned. So right. none of them wanted to talk about it. So I said, why do you think we're having such a hard time with this conversation? And at first they didn't want to say anything. And then I had a student who finally spoke up and he said, Rainy, I just don't understand why you would choose to be gay. And I was like, I'm so glad you asked that question. Thank you for being brave enough to ask that question. And I said, imagine tomorrow that the laws change, there's a new president and you are now forced to marry a boy. That's how it is. You know, other people have put their religion on you and you have to marry a boy. He's like, but I'm, I'm not attracted to boys. I was like, it doesn't matter what you're attracted to. It's how it makes me feel. It makes me uncomfortable to see you with a girl. So you need to marry a boy. And he's like, but that's not what I'm into. And I'm like, it doesn't matter what you love or who you love or how you want to express that. It matters how I feel and how your relationship makes me feel. And he was like, that's, that's ridiculous. And I was like, that's exactly what it's like, you know, like that's, that's the same thing, right? Like what difference does it make how I feel about who you love? Right. He's like, it doesn't. I was like, it's the same thing. Right. Right. That's all it is. And it's not a choice. You don't choose to be interested in girls. Right. Did you ever have to think about, I have to tell my parents that I like girls. He's like, no. And I was like, yeah, imagine what that must be like to have to make this big announcement to other people. That's something we never have to deal with because it's just, you know, we live in the society that makes it feel like that's the only way there is to be. Could you imagine if the way you love was so outside of the norm that other people wanted to put laws about it? Right. He was like, that just doesn't make any sense. And I was like, that's, that's what we're talking about. Nobody chooses this. This is just how you are. Just like you don't choose to be straight. I don't choose to be straight. It's just the way I was born. And he was like, oh, okay. Okay, I get it. And he just said, I get it. And he nodded. He was like, okay. And it just blew my mind. Like, even if that was the only kid who got that, that kid got it that day. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. But he had always been too afraid to ask that question because they're afraid of being homophobic. They're afraid of asking those questions and then having, you know, unfortunately, I love the movement, but sometimes the movement can really jump down people's throats. Right. Especially <clears throat> these young boys. And they were feeling the wrath of that. Just like, oh my gosh, if I say anything, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a racist and a homophobe and this that, and the other. And I'm like, you know, let me as again, a doubly marginalized person invite you to this table and give you a reprieve from that and let you ask your questions and then explain them to you so then you understand. She was jumping down her own throat. I was like, hold on, sister soldier. Bring it, reel it on in. You're not racist. I've known you for, hey, you're not racist. I've known you for a long, you, you're not racist. Stop. I'm glad that it's like that. I'm glad that they're feeling that way because their fathers were never meant or never felt bad for saying a racist comment. And that is fucking outstanding. That's how you beat white supremacy, in my own opinion. Like, yeah, and I teacher, mean, I think Rainey does an amazing job at, an amazing job at making sure that the education is brought to the front because 
My thing is, I really try to consider myself and look at things from an all-inclusive point, right? Like, from a babe, a child, people follow ignorance, intelligence, whatever it is. That's what they follow, regardless. Because your survival dictates your, your methods, your movements, your operations. So I think that it's really, like, admirable of you to want to be in that space to create those conversations because like Liz is saying, they don't have to and they never have to and then don't give a damn when they, <laughs> you know, you see the videos where the one guy's on there like, and what what do you have a problem with? What, what, yeah. you think it's a problem? Cause I said, I said the N word, I said the N word, <laughs> you're mad. Like yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I don't, but you're on my car and you're, threatening me now and right. I can't do anything. Like if I beat your ass, it's going to be a real situation. So it's, it's very much, um, it's, it's a process and that's cool that you are dedicated to that part of the process. Yes, it, it, it can be hard, but I think what makes it easier is just because I understand the developmental stage of this group. And this developmental stage has such a want for justice, you know, they have such a want for belonging, you know, so this is the prime time to steer them in that direction, you know, and this is also the time where we lose them. This is the time where we lose white boys and they start getting these very dangerous ideas. Dylan Roof was only 19. Right. Kyle Rittenberg or whatever his name was, was 17. He's three, four years older than the boys I'm teaching now. And he so, went and did those things. So we have a limited window, I think, to get them. And that's where I feel like my, I feel like that's where my calling is, is to speak with them because I have, you know, gone to school in white neighborhoods and I understand and I know how to, you know, really talk to white affluent people like that and and really get them to think and talk and and not be I don't want to say intimidating but not intimidate does I, I don't know if that makes yeah you know what I mean like just make them feel like they can come to me and and I think that if I can give these boys at least one person where they can look back and when they're hearing all of that hate and all of those things about black people are this black people are that black women are this they'll have one who They'll be like that. Wait, but that's not rainy. I remember my English teacher having these amazing lessons and we had these deep discussions and talking about to kill a mockingbird, but then her talking about the Scottsboro trial at the same time and like really exposing us to kind of the horrors of the nation, but also talking about how do we make it better and, and giving us a voice in those things and saying, how do you do this? What do you think? You know, so that's kind of where I'm at with that is just being, if I am the only black teacher they ever have, making a lasting enough impression where they will take me in their hearts when they go and vote and vote in my interest or vote in the interest of my children when I talk about them and remember me, you know what I mean? So true. So okay. now would you say that, or what theorist if I'm going to take it there, I'm going to ask, pick your brain. What theorist would you 
associate, because you talked about their developmental stage, what theorists would you follow then with the understanding that you're expecting them to be able to adopt at that age? I am a Montessorian. I've been trained in Montessori. So okay. my adolescent um, orientation training in that. So, um, but you know, Montessori took from a lot of people. She took from Via, uh, Vygotsky and Piaget. They all intermingle, you know? Right. So, I mean, good teaching is just good teaching, but right. um, understanding the planes of development, I really, that was very much so a Montessori type of idea, you know? And I see it very, very vividly when you see that red plane of development, which means a lot of change, a lot of emotional and physical and hormonal changes between the ages of 12 and 18. The body doesn't go through any more changes like that, except from the ages of zero to three. Like right. it is exponential how much they grow and change and develop in that time frame. And 12 to 15 is really like oh my gosh, you know, that's where they are realizing that they ha are somebody outside of their parents, that they have beliefs outside of their parents, that they have a want for justice, that they have, again, that want for belonging, that they can develop their own identity and they are in the process of developing who they are going to be for the rest of their lives in this moment, in these very crucial years. So I definitely would say I am um, Montessori and when I look at development in that in that aspect and why I think it's so important to reach children at that very special age at 12 to 15. I don't do high school the 15 to 18 I'm like I, <laughs> I don't I, I have a very like limited window like once you're 15 I'm like see you later right 12 to 15 year olds they still laugh at my jokes you know <laughs> I do funny Friday stories and I tell them about like embarrassing things I did when I was in middle school. I funny Friday in high school and they're like, that hits too close to home and I don't want to be that kind of an adult. I'm like, okay, well, um, rude. And then they're also, they're also so much taller than me. I'm only five, three. So, you know, they'll come up to me and they like, they tower over me and they're like, Hey, rainy. And I'm like, first off, <laughs> First off, how dare you with that deep ass voice? No one told you to go and hit puberty. Get out of my face. I no thank you. It's it's rude and there I don't like it. So you know, I still have the 12 year olds like, hi Amy. Like I, I can my. they still need you, but they're not quite so dependent on you. You know, you can have these discussions with them, but then they still they still kind of want to please you a little bit. Right. You know. Right. They're easy, you know, you can still like, if you tell them little stories about yourself and, you know, they realize, oh my gosh, she's a nerd. <laughs> you know, they wanna, they wanna talk to you. Like, you know, even now my students, we're doing distance learning. And one of the things I do is on Mondays, I open up my Zoom classroom just to hang out. We sit down and we watch Tiny Kitchen and we talk because I love Tiny Kitchen. <laughs> you know, I have like today I had 15 of them show up and they just, they wanted to talk and chat and ask about my kids and, you know, what are you doing after school and this, that, and the other. And, you know, they just want that social interaction because that's what we used to do in class. I used to leave my lunch open and they would just come and sometimes they'd be like, I just, I don't understand boys. I'm like, yeah, you never will. Right, right. <laughs> that's not, you know, the boys are like, I don't understand girls. Like, yeah, you never will. Right. <laughs> Right. You understand, but you know, they just want somebody who's not their parent. 
at that age. They want, but they want to trust an adult. So be that adult to put yourself in that position to be someone that they can trust, that they can go to. And I think that that's, you know, that's why I do it. And that's why I love it so much. That's good. Education has a very, like, weird, funny fact about education. They didn't accept wearing seatbelts until it was taught in schools. And to stay off the street when cars came in. So, like, education is this very special, safe space in America. And I'm just, like, talking to the white people. Do not go up to strangers that happen to be black or brown to ask your questions. Like That happened to me, kind of. That's wrong. I'm just going to shout out to the white, ignorant people out there. Like, Red Dove's a safe space, but educate in my opinion and i'd be interested to know what you think rainy if i'm way off base because i have the honor of a professional educator but i just i caution white people to to understand and to recognize that like the educational world is a place of learning and like whether you are white brown or black you can apply social justice to the next generation and to teach the full American history, to advocate for, there is no more Black History Month, there is an American social studies program, history program. This is just all my opinion. So I'm just like, I have an opportunity to ask a professional, like, what do you think about that? Am I off base? You mean about not just going to random people and asking like about how to educate about social justice? Yeah, like, edu- like a school, like my most memorable teachers were my English teachers. And one of them was um, like our debate coach, so showing my nerd badge. But um, I still remember the lessons that those teachers taught me, especially English teachers. So I think that if you're a teacher, this is an opportunity to destroy white supremacy and teach love, not hate. But like, I know white people in my life would hear what you're saying as a validation to burden a black or brown person outside of the education world um, with their ignorance. You're still being racist, in my opinion. But I wonder what you think. I, I agree. I, it's not easy. This work is hard. It is devastating to lay it out there. And, you know, because you hear people talking about these things in theory, I think sometimes white people talk about Black Lives Matter and it's this theory thing, but this is my actual life. Like, this is my actual son's life. This is my brother's life. Like, I have been in situations where I'm worried about if I will get home okay. And, you know, I'm a master's degree holding educated black woman. I come from an educated family and I still have those fears. So it's not theory. This is my everyday life. I can't take the skin off. I can't theorize about it. This is who I am. So I think it feels better to do it with children and teenagers because one, that's my job. And I I walked willingly into this. And they need that. 
at the adult level, you have enough know-how to go find the resources, to go educate yourself. There have been plenty of writings. Go pick up W.E.B. Du Bois and read about double consciousness and you know, listen to what we're saying. I mean, you don't have to get the opinion of every black person you meet about this because it is an emo it is emotionally draining to tell your story to everybody who wants to hear it. And, you know, unless that you are, and I think this is something that hasn't been talked about enough, unless you are willing to monetarily pay for that time. And I think a lot of people are like, well, you know, you're just telling stories, but it's it's not. So I, I do think that you should not, you should not assume that all of your black friends want to have these conversations with you. Not all of your black friends want to talk about what you think about Kamala Harris and Barack Obama, right? Like, again, it's, it's theory for you, but these are our livelihoods and watching them be disparaged online, disparaged over and over again, and having to feel like you have to defend your very existence and your livelihood is existing. So no, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, or seek out the people who are willingly giving their time for that. But then again, monetarily pay them. Like I know I have some coworkers at my school who, you know, I am the social justice coordinator. So I have put myself in this position for my coworkers. So um, we, over the summer read White Fragility and we talked about it. And, you know, I know that there are certain controversies with that book, but I thought reading it from a white person's point of view to white people sometimes is easier. Sometimes it feels it, you know, if you're getting your feet wet in the water, as long as you're getting your feet wet, I don't care how you do it, right? Mm -hmm. And then read other people, but get in this. And so I went and we talked about it and, you know, they would read, we'd read a chapter and then they would ask, okay, so I'm, I'm confused. What does this mean? This and the other. And I was like, well, these are what it means on my end. I didn't mind doing that because I offered, but, you know, I think, again, like you said, like some people can really feel like it's okay to demand that. And I think that black women, we have a lot of demands on us already on what we're capable of, you know, they expect a lot of strength out of us and like, Hey, high five. Like, I think you posted the other day, Liz, that meme of, you know, the, the hand that's drowning in the water. And, you know, they're like, Oh, you're such a strong black woman. They're like, yeah, no, I'm drowning. Like I could use a hand out and you're like, you know, let me give you a crisp high five. And you're like, that's not what I need. I need, I need a safe place. I need to be. So white allies, I think the best thing you can do is try to see how you can be a safe place for your people of color. Cause I think at least on my end, I'm not doing okay right now. And I could use that. I don't want to have these conversations with people outside of my students and stuff or people outside of, I don't want to educate anybody who is an adult on this right now, because you can figure it out. It's all of the information is there. So that doesn't need to be my job to show you where all these resources are. Like you took English class, you know how to find resources, you know how to cite your resources, use your MLA format, you know, <laughs> like figure it out, you know, and, and it, you know, it's not that we don't want you at the table. It's just, I saw a great analogy about this. Basically, when you imagine that, you know, black, a black person is in as a professor, right? And they're teaching their class and you know, they've been teaching this class for, you know, 45, 50 minutes about what's going on and how this is happening. And then you come bursting into the room and you're like, I'm sorry, I'm late. I'm sorry, I'm late. Can you go back and tell me everything? 
you're like, yeah, no, like, I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. But now you're going to have to do some catching up. You need to talk to one of your white neighbors. You need to do some reading. I'm not going to stop where I am to catch you up to where we all are. You know, I'm glad you're here. Please stay and listen, but I'm not going to stop everything to catch you up. And then the next person who runs through the door wants the same thing. And then the next person, how are we ever going to get to where we need to be if we have to keep stopping and explaining these things to you that you can go figure out on your own? Well, good point. God damn. Thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm, I'm really happy that you, um, you asked me. This has been like, I'm super excited about this, you know, and you know, I love talking about, like I said, the education and stuff and like, you know, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in the world. It's scary. And, you know, I think one of the things that I think is um, scary about this time in place is, I think, again, the anti-intellectualism and then, you know, this feeling like there is no middle ground, like you're either one way or the other, you know, and it's like either yes or no. And that I think is, um, that's, I think, where there's a lot of danger is this is the only way things can be. Um, I'll tell you a little bit, like, uh, you remember my ex-husband. You met my ex-husband. The last time I saw him, he was your husband. Yeah. Yeah, he, um, six years. Da, da, da. <laughs> yeah. Like the red bad, um, bad guy sound, sound effect. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that, yeah, you know, I was married to a white man, um, you know, I was in the military, well, I wasn't in, the, he was, um, but that, I think that experience really helped me see that there is really no, there's no right or wrong, there's no black and white in this, you know, like, there are ways you can be, right, so you can love black women. You can love the way our asses look. You can love the way our bodies look, but you can still not be about us. And that's what I found out, you know? Right. Wow. wow. So now did you grow up going to white schools? I did. From mostly. K to 12? Yep. Mostly white schools. So, you know, that's what I was around. So, you know, like that's what I've always been, you know, attracted to like, Hey, you know, Hey, that's a, so well looking white chap, blue eyed, blonde haired, you know, <laughs> like, and his come, first come on over here. I know, right? Let me give you a little taste of some chocolate. Right, know? right. Let me show you what's going on. Right. But, you know, like, just because they're into it or they're like attracted does not mean that they are for you and down for your struggle. You know, they can just be down for the booty and that's it. And that's that so deep. And that's what I found out. And that's, you know, even having children and realizing that, you know, so my ex-husband was in the army and, you know, I realized a lot, I was being gaslit a lot, you know, and that's, I realized that I was in a situation where I wasn't seeing it. I made a lot of excuses for his behavior and the way he talked to me. Cause it's like, well, you know, he's not putting his hands on me, so that's okay. But it wasn't you know, and I look back at pictures of me. And I was like, I, I wasn't vibrant. I wasn't glowing. Like I just, I was constantly trying to temper his temper because he was always, he was pissed about everything all the time. Like I always say, he was like, 
a tea kettle constantly blowing off steam and I was a pot with its lid on and just trying to keep everything because the steam was just overwhelming the whole house. Every, we could always feel him being angry about something. And then when I would finally blow my lid because I'd been, you know, had that pot on, that's when he would say, look at how crazy you are. Mm. Look at the way you act. Look at that, you know, and it mm. would be like, yeah, it took a long time for me to get to this point. I'm a pretty even keeled person. I'm not a hothead by any means, but when I get pushed too far, then it's like, okay, like, all right, like Pandora's box is open now. Like right. <laughs> you poke the bear, the bear is here now. So right. it was a lot of gaslighting. So, you know, we eventually got out of the army and we moved back home to California and um, I got him, I helped, he, he, the reason why he was able to get his job was a lot for me, you know, my dad and, you know, recommendations and my friends gave him letters of recommendation asking and me staying up all night, writing out his application, like pushing him to the finish line, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, I was like, you know, let's become a sheriff, which I think was one of the biggest mistakes ever. Watching the deterioration of his personality once he came became into the academy was horrifying. Wow. Quick. How so? His whole demeanor changed. He was a criminal justice major. So, you know, he used to, he was almost too far on the other side. He was always like, you know, ACOB and stuff. I was like, okay, well, no, like, chill, you know, like there's, there's good and bad. Like, you know, we got to figure it out. You know, like, I'm not, you know, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm in that middle ground. Like, Hey, you know, like there's obviously tons of problems and we need to talk about, you know, the 13th amendment and all of these issues and these systemic racism. But, you know, I remember I had a conversation with him and um, I had to go through, it was when we were still in New York and I had to go through a checkpoint, one of those DUI checkpoints. Right. And I stopped and I was like, yeah, no, I haven't been drinking. And I stopped and I came home and I told him about it. He's like, why'd you stop? I was like, uh, cops. And they told me to stop. And he was like, you just give away your rights like that. I'm like, uh, what? And he was like, they can't just have you stop like that. You can't, you're a citizen of the United States. How can you give up your rights like that? That's not what Rosa Parks fought for. And I was like, er, First of all, wow. So he went off on me for stopping at a DU. And I was like, you don't understand your privilege. You can mouth off like that. You can do this crazy stuff where you're only going to open your window this much and tell them, you know, I don't speak. I don't answer questions. You can pull that stuff off because you are a white man. I have children I have to get home to. I pull that shit. I end up like Sandra Bland. And that's not, this is not where I want this to end. This is not where my story ends because you think that I should have handled it one way. I've been black my entire life, buddy. And I've learned how to deal with the cops while being in this black skin. And you're not going to lecture me on what I do to make sure I get home safe. And you're not going to make me feel like I'm less of a black woman because I've complied and I did what I had to, to make sure I was safe. And it wasn't that big of a deal. I didn't need, that's not the hill I want to fight on. That's not the hill I want to die on at all. So I remember just thinking like, how dare you, Mm -hmm. you know, and this idea and to watch it shift from like that to, you know, watching um, when we came back and he started going to 
you know, the academy, the way things changed, you know, like I remember watching Trump win and I sobbed. I sobbed that night. I was like, I just have feel like the entire nation just gave a huge fuck you that tonight. Yeah. And he was like, you're being dramatic. And I'm like, you can feel like that because your livelihood doesn't quite change the way mine does. I'm scared. I can see the writing on the wall. This Trump is white lash for Obama and they're not happy. And he was like, you know, and then when Colin Kaepernick started kneeling, that's disrespectful to me and all the men I fought with. I'm like, you can't see beyond that. Why are you taking this and making it about you? This has nothing to do with you. Right. This isn't about you. This is about the injustice that people like your wife are fe- facing and your father-in-law and your brother-in-law and your son one day. And just that he just could not understand that. And he refused to understand that. We got into a huge argument and I couldn't handle it. And I ended up getting out of the car in the really not great neighborhood, six miles away from home and walking because I just could not be in the car with him anymore. I was so angry and so upset, the intolerance. And then he just started saying things, saying nasty, mean things, um, you know, about, well, why is everything about race with you? Just because you're black doesn't mean you know everything about race. I'm like, well, I know a hell of a lot about being black. I can tell you that. I'm like, well, my friend was black. Like all of those tropes that you hear and you're just like, you've been married to a black woman for seven years and you're going to pull this now. It was just like, I've had children with you. Our children, he's like, our children are just as much white as they are black. And like, if you think that they will be treated like that, you are stupid. Look at how they treated Obama. No one talks about how Obama was half white. No one talks about that. No one is going, and my children are, fair skinned, you know, they're light. Sometimes people can't tell unless I'm near them because they look just like me. But, you know, my daughter looks like me had I been born a white girl, you know, (laughs) but you can look at them and you can tell they're not white. There's something else. My son, he gets very dark. You can tell he is, he's not white. He's got, you know, he, the, the brown paper bag test, especially in the summertime. And I'm like, and that scares me. So watching that descent into being okay with Trump and then being tolerant and then and then attacking me and and what I was doing you know I was doing all of this stuff like I was telling you about with the school and I'd come home to a husband who'd be like you're not actually making a difference whoa you know you're just kidding they're just kids it doesn't really matter you know and you know, having all of this energy at school and then coming home to this dark cloud when I got home, you know, and watching him refuse to help me and watching him watch me struggle holding a full-time job and going to school full-time and then doing everything for our kids. Right. He would sit on his phone and play and say, well, I make more money. So. Fuck you. And. So it just got worse and worse, you know, and that's when he started, you know, drinking a lot, which, you know, was scary. And, um, you know, then he started calling me out of my name and the night my marriage imploded, uh, he called me a fat and ugly cunt in front of my daughter. And uh, 
I thought I was like, are you drunk? Cause the way you're acting, you know, I had just walked with my degree three days prior and he was horrible the whole day, the day I walked with my master's degree. He was pissed that he had to watch the kids all day. You know, and I was like, well, I was busy. I was walking, wow. I was graduating. And, you know, I was embarrassed to tell anybody that I was dealing with all of this, right. you know, cause I, was like, I made this choice. I made this choice to be with this person. And so he called me those names and I was like, I'm just done. And he was like, you know, I wish I'd never, you know, it's been the last 10 years have been a mistake. And I'm like, then why did you have two year, two kids with me? And why are you saying all of this right now? I am literally trying to finish my master's thesis right now. And you're having this meltdown. And so I had told him I wasn't going to deal with it. And, you know, he was calling me all outside of my name. So I took my kids upstairs to our master bedroom and I locked the door. I was like, I'm done. And that's when he came in and kicked the door down. And that's when I started screaming, you, you're not going to do this. I'm not, I'm not doing this with you. You're not, you know, I've always said, you know, I'll go to jail if you put your hands on me. I will fight. I'll, I'll fight. That's not going to happen. Right. So mm -hmm. I told him, you need to stop or I'll call the police. And you know what he told me? Go ahead. I probably know who's on duty. Wow. Then he threw a TV. Wow. So then I called and they came and they saw the broken TV. They saw the busted, they saw the busted door. They saw my kids crying and me crying. And they looked around my house and they told me, cause I said, you guys need to get here now. This is one of yours. There are <sighs> guns in the house, mm. you know, cause that's what you have to say to get them there. Cause I'm the one who helped him apply. I'm the one who helped him study for his test. I know the penal codes. Right. So they came and they looked at all of that stuff and they said, well, ma'am, I mean, it is his house. He can break anything he wants in his own home. And I said, Whoa. you're liars. You cannot break stuff while somebody else is in the house. This is domestic violence. And I'm like, so you're going to leave this man here in this kind of a rage. And what happens if I'm the next thing that he hits? And I'm like, I don't know if it's because he's white and I'm black or because he's a sheriff and I'm not, but either way, you're not protecting me and my kids. So wow. I was like, like, fuck all of you. Wow. And he left. And that was the last, that was the night my marriage ended. Wow. I was so embarrassed. So embarrassed. And it took my mom for a week. I lived in that house, but then he kept coming in to get his guns. And I was like, I have to get out. So I had to move in with my parents lived in my childhood bed with my two kids for about three months until I could figure it out. I was driving an hour and 10 minutes one way every day with the kids back and forth to get to school and back. And I just had to start over, but I got a uh, apartment. I got a raise at school. I, I, I finished, I graduated. I got my Montessori diploma and I just, you know, I was like, I, I can do this. I can do this on my own. And it was devastating. It was devastating to see the end of that and, and to see how nasty he got, you know, like he got terrible even now. Like I, um, it's been two and a half years and I'm, the judge just now signed off on the finalization of my divorce. Jesus. So woohoo. But, um, you know, the first thing he did was he went and got another black girlfriend 
Because his first wife was black. His first wife was black, yes. And then there was me. And then now it's another girl. And he gets younger and younger. So he's seven years older than me. And this new one, I think, is like 12 years younger than him. Wow. Yuck. You know? Because, you know, I think that, you know, he preys on girls who, you know, won't stand up, don't know better, you know? And I don't think he could get a woman his own age, you know, who would, who would deal with that. But That's um, crazy. Like, even watching what he feels white. like. Sorry. Oh, oh, no, go ahead, Liz. Sorry. No, no, please go. Even watching, like, you know, what he thinks is okay, you know, and having to fight tooth and nail, you know, I had to go pick up my kids or drop them off. And he decided not to tell me that this woman was in my house that I still own. And this woman I'd never seen before in my life opened the door and was like, oh, yeah. I'm like, who are you? She's like, oh, he had to go to work. So you're supposed to leave the kids here with me. I'm like, no. You, you. I'm like, I'm sure you're, a, I'm sure you're a lovely woman, but I have no idea who the hell you are. It's like, well, they know who I am. And I was like, they told me you were the babysitter. Ooh. This is not a babysitter. And she was like, oh, well, my kids know. And I was like, my kids would go off with somebody dressed as Spider-Man. Their judgment is not great. Right. Oh, so, so no, I'm not going to leave them with you. Strange woman. I've never seen before at 7 PM at night. Oh so, my In my and house. Called, and he texted and he was like, bring my children back. And I was like, I don't know who that is. And he said, that's none of your damn business. You don't need to know who she is. Like, well, if you're not there, then I kind of do. I'm not leaving them with someone. And he basically threatened me that he would have buddies of his waiting at my house. If what? I didn't have the kids back. So I called the police again. I called the police again. And I was like, he's out of control. And is this okay? Like, am I within my rights? And he was like, absolutely. You can't, you shouldn't ever leave your children with someone you don't know. That's stupid. I'm like, well, can somebody tell him that, please? So they called and told him, you can't do that. Like, she, no, if you're not there, then you need to go get them the next day. So he came the next day with her and she tried to introduce herself to me. And he pushed her out of the way and was like, don't talk to her. Mm-hmm. Talking to me. And she's like, she's not important get back in the car and manhandled her into the car. And I was like, I was with that man for 10 years and he never put his hands on me like that. And I was like, that's not gonna get better. That's not gonna oh get my better. Goodness. You know? And, and you know, he's, he's got this young girl who's trying to do whatever it is under the sun and, you know, playing house. You know, I had to get on them because he was sleeping in bed with my kids with her. And I was like, no, that's not, no, mm. that's not gonna happen. I know. Yeah, I like just off the rails, just absolutely off the rails, the things that he thinks. And but you know, the hardest thing is, is going to court against a white cop. Because anything I say, it's just you're just mad and angry and bitter. That's what I deal with. They don't listen to me. It doesn't matter how much evidence I have. He can come into court with nothing and they'll be like, well, you know, your schedule and, you know, you're a hero and, you know, things like that. So that has been, but it has been an absolute nightmare watching that. And, you know, it's, 
it's kind of crazy. Like you can tell, like he's really like, I'll wear my Black Lives Matter shirts and it just, oh, he gets so pissed. <laughs> you can tell. And you know, my daughter, she's seven, and you know, oh, I just love my children. You know, they're my daughter's so woke. Um, she told me a story. She was at her dad's house, and I guess he was watching Fox, and Trump came on, and she's like, "Turn that off! I don't like him." And oh. said, your mom is trying to brainwash you. You can have a difference of, of opinion. And my daughter's like, my mom is a teacher. <laughs> like my mother. And then she told her dad, Trump is not good for women or people of color. And I'm a woman of color. So turn it off. Wow. I love her. That's good. I loved it. And I was just like, yes, baby. Yes because somebody has to teach her how to be black. You know, wow. not gonna get it from there. And you know, he's going to treat her like she's just a little white girl, but she's not. She has to live in this world as a biracial child who has a black mother and black family. And she's watching an attack on us right now. And to pretend like that's not a part of her and that's not also her battle I think it does, I think it's a horrible disservice. Or my son, who is only five, but I fear for him every day. I think he's got, on average, I think uh, the Georgetown Law Center on Poverty and Inequality came out with a study. I can give you the link. Um, they did a study to look at, you know, how adults look at young children. On average, they, misage black boys about five to six years. So by I've got about five or six more years of perceived innocence for my son. Right? Until he's 11, wow. 12 years old and they're gonna right. at him like he's 15, 16. Right. My that's true. My daughter is seven and that's even worse. You know, that same study talks about the adultification of black girls. On average, most adults feel like black children, black girls in particular, it's even worse for girls than it is for boys. Um, let me see, actually I can pull up, I put the studies up. The justice system feels, or people feel that black girls need less, less nurturing, less protection. They need to be supported less. They need to be comforted less. They're more independent. They know more about adult topics. Black girls know more about sex on average they misage young black girls. Wow. So that's 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 the reality of my children. That's where they're right. going to be. And I have to get them ready for that. And I have a co-parent who will not do that work. Right. That's true. You know. So that's well, doing a great job clearly. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm You're trying. Welcome. I'm definitely trying, but we'll see. Right. You know, we talk a lot about the black boys in the juvenile system, which is so important too. But, you know, our young black girls are left to defend themselves and, you know, they get this extreme independence that they have because they feel like they can't depend on anybody because nobody, they already feel like they're independent and they don't need to be nurtured and they're babies and they do need that. They need to be comforted. They need to realize that they can be children too. They're not adults yet read an article not too long ago where it discussed that black teens, fe girls, 
are often at higher rates imprisoned due to uh, being victims and fighting for their lives, essentially. So the majority, I can say from the research, the data of that article, is that they are actually like criminalized victims. Absolutely. Well, because even the way a black girl talks, right? Instead of like if some if a teacher says something to a white girl versus a black girl, the black girl is automatically thought to have attitude. Right. Automatically thought to be combative. And so they deal with corporal punishment and you know, uh, getting her involved in the juvenile system rather than a white girl, you know, she's within this universe of you know, the circle of, of responsibility, you know, this, this universe of, of responsibility that we place white women at the center of that, you know, they need protection and they need to be nurtured and coddled. And our black girls are not there. Our black girls are on the outsides and they need that just as much as these white girls do, but right. they don't have those same advantages. Right. Right. So when we do see that, you know, and we see them, like you said, they're victimized and then they're criminalized for standing up for themselves, for saying no, because no one else will protect them. Right. And they learn from a young age. And then you see, it's almost a generational curse. And you see black women, that's how we, that's how we survive is by that extreme independence. We, you know, not being very vulnerable to other people, you know, and it's not that we don't want you, but we've learned that it's not a safe thing. Right. We can trust ourselves, you know, we can protect ourselves, but putting our livelihoods or anything in the hands of anybody else is not a safe thing. I learned that right. with my own husband, you know, I right. can't, I can't trust him. I can't protect, he, he wasn't there to protect me. He ended up victimizing me. Right. You know, right. and it starts again at that very young age. We see it as young as preschool, you know, right. we know that young boys, young black boys get, um, up to three times, I believe the statistic is three times more likely to get suspended. Young black girls are six times more likely to get suspended than their white counterparts. Wow. Girls don't get suspended as much, but when it does happen, overwhelmingly, it is black girls. Right. Wow. Definitely is something to consider just in the perception and interaction of children and then also as you know, we were talking about the criminal criminalization of black children, because when you think about it too, do those statistics support that the perception is that they there is an intent to do harm or that they're violent? Or is it that you're ignoring violence? You get what I'm saying? So just as you were saying, which circled all the way back around to what you do in your school for your population, it circles back to the fact that children deserve on both hands, right? Because you, the, it's not a safe space to be ignorant either. You know, I traveling is one of my favorite things to do. I go all over. I've been in various communities when traveling. And I appreciate the fact that I've been able to do that safely, you know? And I've seen people that also, Americans, right? And specifically white Americans sometimes don't have those same um, experiences of comfort or um, casual conversation where they can learn or understand or take in, 
you know, the approach is more so for the adaptation to meet their standards rather than to embrace the culture that's already, like, existing. I think that just with all things considered, that is the importance of both sides, right? You know, in the education and even, I, and that's why I think what you're doing is so powerful because everyone wants to say there's something wrong with the black child. We have to figure out what the problem is because they're these black people, they're just, they have issues evidently. And we have to put them in this box and then shake the box. And when we say these magic words, it will change. But if we don't say these magic words, it will continue. But we hold the key, right? But you're essentially saying, like, there's something wrong. Not wrong, because let's remove that word. There's something to learn in all aspects. And that is okay. That is okay. They expect Black children to assimilate to white culture without giving Black children any of the privilege of white culture. Right. And then they wonder why there's such a problem with it. They don't have any of the same privileges. They don't have the privilege to go to school and not be handcuffed at school at six years old. Watching that a little six-year-old girl was handcuffed because she was throwing a tantrum. That's what six-year-olds do. Why is that any different than the six-year-old boy who's spitting and kicking and hitting, right? It's not great behavior, but to criminalize a young black girl like that and to put her in handcuffs, she'll never forget that for the rest of her life right? Because we feel like they need to be taught lessons because society feels like they need to be corralled and they need to be policed more than white children. And they do that to our black children over and over and over again. And then they expect our black children to behave like white children, but they don't ever give our black children any of the benefits of the doubt of their white children. And my thing is, if you don't even care that much, right? Because Liz always says like, oh, that's uh, class... 202 at this university, Red Dove University. But my thing is, like, just consider the fact that the uh, you need to be the point of being educated, right? So if there's too much attention, like you said, if we're criminalizing behaviors that are appropriate for the development, then we're still ignoring the fact that you have an issue that we're not addressing because we're putting all our attention over here and it's misguided, period. But the other thing is if we're then also just ignoring when you also exhibit these behaviors and not addressing it, you're still missing out. So if you wanna look at it from a self-centered point of view, you're losing. And if you wanna look at it from the point of view of caring for the next individual, it's wrong, point blank. And there are two boxes and there are there are no others, you right. know? Because it's that, that idea of equality versus equity. And I think that's what we're at. You know, there's that picture of, um, you know, the the kids looking at, um, the kids on the box looking at the baseball game with the slanted, um, yep, I've seen right? it. you know, and everybody gets the same box. That's equality, but that's not what everybody needs. Equity is making sure that everybody has the same access to view the game. If this person doesn't need those boxes, or if this person needs two boxes and that's okay that people need different things to get to the same places you know and 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 this idea of that everybody is fair and equal we don't live in a fair and equal world we don't live america is not a fair america has been started america was born in blood and fire and theft from 
thieving this land and thieving human beings. So it's never going to be an equal place, a place of equity until we come to terms with those things and we right those wrongs. And, you know, instead of doing the work that we need to do, we bury our heads in the sand and it pretend like the problem will go away. And it's not, we're just watching, it's getting exasperated. So, okay, let's lighten it up. So you said there was a reason why your name is Rainy. There is, yeah. Um, so my given name is Rainisha. Obviously, that uh, is very indicative of my race. Um, so I used to have issues with that. My mom used to say you should go by something else. You know, people might, you know, not hire you. And I was like, Mom, you're the one who named me. Like, you know, wow. they're gonna figure it out when I walk in. You know, being black and all. I didn't, right. you know, like, I don't know. I think the braids and the black skin is going to tip them off. Right. But I didn't realize that what she had meant at that time was just my name would prevent me from even getting the interviews. And I did an experiment because I am very qualified and I just kept not getting calls back. Renisha's resume didn't get calls back, but Rainey's did. It'd be the exact same resume, but Rainy is, you know, non-ethnically defining. It's fun. It's, you know, happy. And then I come in with, you know, my sister calls it my resting approachable face. So, so you know, they're like, oh, right. okay, he can handle this. But Rainy Shaw on paper, they they come to all kinds of conclusions about who I am, what I am. So, you know, I've always kind of got. Um, Unfortunately, when I was in school, could not or would not pronounce it correctly. I, you know, had a substitute teacher who called me Renisha, mm. and she called wow. me. And I was like, I didn't know we had Rhonda in this class. <laughs> oh, and she was like, you know what I meant? And I was like, I, no, I did not. She was like, I feel like it's very phonetically easy. You're like, you're an adult. I got tired of people chopping up my name and I got tired of, you know, does it mean something in African? And I'm like, Ugh. no, no, it, does. it doesn't, it doesn't, no, that's no, no. So Rainy makes it easier for me to get in, to be in. Wow. I don't Thank know if you. that lightened anything up. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> As the abyss. Hmm. But you know, that's a thing. Like if you're listening, take the time to learn people's names. If you have to write it down, write it down. Their names are important. Don't ask, well, how can you make your name easier for me? Right? If we can understand how to say, you know, by Gotsky, and we can say Daenerys Targaryen, then you can learn how to say other names. You can learn how to say ethnic names. Figure it out. Ask, write down the pronunciation if you have to. It's the truth. Yeah. Rainy, thank you so much for being on tonight. It was an honor to have you. Thank you for giving us thank your you time. Thank you so much. Yes.
Thank you for having me. This has been such a rejuvenating night. I didn't realize I needed this as much until I started talking. <laughs> Apparently, I had a lot I needed to say. <laughs> Thank you. And on the Rev Dove, um, you talked before about emotional labor. So um, if you don't remember or you want to look it up, it's um, basically like when you have discussions with black or brown people, it is emotional labor for them to discuss racism. For Rainey's emotional labor, you can cash up at dollar sign Day of Rain. That's D A Y O F R A I N. And we're going to put that on our website and on our Instagram account. And I think it's next week we're going to start our book club, or maybe two weeks from now. We're going to start uh, So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijoma Oluo. And we look forward to seeing you all then. Thank you. Good night. Mm -hmm.